Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of season two of Dickinson Forevermore podcast. I am one third of your podcast host, Robin Detman. I'm a director and producer at LDW Films and I'm the producer nerd on this podcast. Hi, I'm Jess. I am a writer, actor, and the resident editing nerd of this podcast. Hi, I'm Jay Red. I'm a photographer. I'm a music producer. And like my queen, Emily Dickinson says, I dwell in possibilities. On this week's podcast, we are diving into season two, episode three, The Only Ghost I Ever Saw, and episode four, The Daisy Follows Soft the Sun. Or does she? We'll discuss that. In our guest segment, we are talking to the amazing Virginie Bonnet. You know her on Twitter as Vi, Provence, New York. Her threads are legend, as is her research. We are so excited to have her as part of our extended podcast family. We'll talk about how she got into Dickinson, some of her insights into color theory, and more. So, so let's just dive right in. Okay. So first, we want to dive into episode three, which is the only ghost I ever saw. Jay, you know who wrote this episode, right? Sophie Zucker and Ayo Edibiri. Yes. Do you think it's a good, so good. Do you think mm-hmm. it's a coincidence that she had the best lines that she has in the show, I think, are in this episode? <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize how funny they were until this last rewatch. They're like, hysterical. They're hysterical. <gasps> this episode was actually one of my favorite episodes. Um, not just because we get to see Haley Steinfeld with her hair down and straightened like a queen. Also, speaking of Haley Steinfeld, I don't know if you guys noticed, but she has a directorial credit for this episode. As in, she as in, it? yeah, apparently. Really? It's so weird that I saw Sophie's name, but interesting. Yeah, like on Rotten Tomatoes. And then I think if you Google the episode, the first thing that pops up is the, the credits. Um, and it says directed by Haley Steinfeld and you know what's interesting is it doesn't say that on IMDb which which I was also confused because it said someone else wrote the the episode on on or someone else directed it on that one which was I was like really confused but two sites state that Haley Steinfeld directed it but did they did they co-directed it yeah they they gave her credit in in the opening credits I'm going to check it out while you guys talk. <laughs> so if you yeah, pull well, it up, like on, on the Rotten Tomatoes website, it'll show you like the whole episode, like the overview and everything. And then it'll show you the two directors and she has a directorial credit on there. Hang on. I'm looking at it right now. Created by Elena Smith, written by Elena and Sophie, directed by Rosemary Rodriguez. Yeah, I know. I know. I was, yeah, I was so confused. I was like, hold on. Hold up. I, you know what? I kind of feel like maybe Haley would make sort of a big deal of that. Like, what right? else is she like, directed? Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. And I don't even feel like it would just be her. I feel like a lot of people would make a big deal about it. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, I mean. At the same time. Uh, I, I kind of feel like everybody's like Rotten Tomatoes. But it's like, you know, it it started out as a PR site. So. I mean, that part. No, that part. Tomatoes, no, that I'm part. Saying, Absolutely. And they're critics, right? And there's great critics on there and everything. But anyway. But we digress. What do you want to talk about? Yeah, so episode three. <laughs> let's let's go, let's have a seance. So 
so we what? open up yeah that's... so we open up on episode three what what's the first thing that happens oh actually wait the first thing that happened i remember was lavinia and lola montes doodly doodly do yeah no oh they're in church oh my god i can't believe us okay <laughs> so the first thing that happens is we're in church and it's the first time we see Vinny kind of starting to really awaken and be like that was really sexist and imagine how many church things she probably sat through and never thought that but now the new Vinny coming out who's like showing ship who she is and who she wants to be i love that she's like didn't that seem kind of sexist <laughs> he's like no 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 women contain black magic and it needs to be contained yeah <laughs> what if i don't want a last name what if i just want to be Vinny, a symbol i know that comes later but that was <laughs> i'm like and she totally <laughs> did though she realized. totally did <laughs> she is a symbol i love her they need spiritual help I need spiritual help. Let's go seek wisdom from the dead. It is. Uh, I mean, I, so yeah, they, they have a seance and, and we all need spiritual help. It's, it's so funny to touch on seances. They were, they were a real thing. My guys in, in, in freaking the 19th century. Like it was, oh yeah. They've been around forever. Yeah. Like it was, it Maybe was forever. a lot harder to avoid them than to actually find them. Like they were, they mm. were a prominent thing. So it was just like, of course people would do that. Yeah. Right? So like what? Like that was probably a teenage or a young woman thing. No, to not do. even, I mean, not did... even. So it was like everyone, everyone was doing seances. I mean, it was like worse than cocaine in the eighties. Let's be real. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing seances. Like we would have notable names. Wait, wait, <laughs> are you putting seances on the same level as cocaine? That is so interesting. <laughs> do you want to do some cocaine or do you want to go That's do a exactly seance? That's exactly why I said it was it was a lot harder to avoid them than it was to actually go to one like you know how like now you would be like oh let's go to a seance people would look at you crazy but back then it was a thing so like you have notable names like freaking like mark twain frederick Douglass, queen victoria everybody was out here doing seances and they even had like art seances so like if a spirit came through and you were painting like i don't know let's say picasso came through and said hello you were painting it was considered like spirit art oh i love it yeah well it's kind of like letting the spirit move through you right we've talked about that kind of the channeling just we don't do it with a ouija board. yeah no <laughs> interesting not a ouija yeah, i would board. not touch that. i would run <laughs> if i if i go to a party and i see someone pull out a ouija board i'm gone oh my god okay <laughs> one of my other favorite lines hattie yeah i don't need to talk to any more dead white people <laughs> right <laughs> but also yeah. i love it like her being a freelancer she's like and i do my own this and i do my own that this this episode the dialogue is just the only reason she agreed to do it is because she was gonna get paid <laughs> yeah yeah because she was like no no we'll pay you oh okay, okay. <laughs> yeah but it's the adoring look that lavinia has on her face <laughs> the whole time she's looking at hattie is what got me in that mm. moment because she's just like i'm so proud of you girl do it oh my god <laughs> it was so good that whole seance scene and sophie after abigail kind of comes back like right she does as a joke and they're like she's she's faking it <laughs> and abby's like i'm still not convinced there were so many great Her sophie tucker humor lines. is is 
top notch dude like and then her doing all these comedy shows right now and and just absolutely killing it yeah okay i have a question mm -hmm. for you the cat's name leonard fillmore (laughs) do you think that was because the 13th president in 1850 was millard fillmore where did that where did that name come from that's what i want to know because i was like leonard fillmore who is that and couldn't find any leonard fillmore but i found millard fillmore who was president for three years interesting connection maybe we'd have to ask elena who knows i know Elena. so yes repressed mrs dickinson can we talk about that for a second repressed (laughs) depressed she's like she is mourning the loss of their intimacy yeah and their youth she leaves her husband in a hole that was so good and and it was really beautiful like how emotional she got when she was like why don't we do that anymore you know again the show touches on real things that like the intimacy goes and there was just like really beautiful emotion expressed there like always grounded in in real emotion but when she left edward in a hole and then and then and then she channels i forget his no, name i was dying because the way she was getting out of that hole and his head was up her dress and she was like yeah well it's about time oh my god, <laughs> oh my god. but then the night of the seance when she's like totally mounts the bedpost i was i remember the first time i saw it I was like no she is not this was one of the funniest episodes just... hands down yeah totally absolutely mounted that bro no she did okay she was like Paul Revere went to town just (laughs) when I was watching it this last time I was also like wait is this this is real I mean they're all experiencing this and isn't this like one of the first times we hear Emily question something and say oh shit this is real yes Mm -hmm. yeah like when she sees Jane crying and the blood coming out of her yeah that's yeah yeah and then she's like, oh, shit, it's so over the top. But then she goes downstairs and she meets her. Whatever nobody is, I don't know her inner person telling her the actual ghost. Like, I just love that it's never explained. Like, I love the cricket from Pinocchio. <laughs> My conscience. Well, <laughs> well, I think, you know, as we have established throughout the season and about and throughout, you know, the rest of what we see with nobody before we know him as fraser um you know he's just an extension of her subconscious yeah you know? right telling her like but she's like halfway she's halfway in her head and in that world but also dealing with what's real that she's present for so i think those two contrasting things shine some light for her like oh maybe i shouldn't do this because this is a result but here's my warning. Do I heed the warning or do I take the call essentially? Yeah. And later on, as we get to episode four, you know, she, she has a conversation with Olmstead. It's very relevant to what she experiences. I think when she's fighting that juxtaposing battle internally, mm-hmm. the night of the seance. Yeah. I was actually the last time or this rewatch, I was like, just for some reason it came into my head that like Frazier is her work speaking to her of saying like, you need to protect me. I don't know. It's just no, interesting I all mean, the connections that you make, you know, of like the, your gut and that side of you and your own work or just. Well, I mean, what we see is the audience is the extension of her subconscious, 
but that's also a relevant theory that it could be her work speaking to her saying protect me I mean they both are in tandem I feel yeah 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 hey Jess Mm -hmm. did you notice what's in that painting that Austin has (laughs) sheep (laughs) there's sheep in that painting I was like what I had to I had to like not rewind it it's not a tape but yeah I had to go back and I was like it's sheep it's sheep ship I love how everybody's finding sheep now it's like the sheep thing which is probably not even a thing and we're like no so the sheep because again has it been I bring it up once I bring up sheep theory one time one time well and then we're like there's sheep everywhere and it was like you brought it up twice back then there were sheep there everywhere you brought it up twice queen you brought it up twice. <laughs> Did she or was it? No, good? she brought it up twice. I brought oh, it, it up me. The it was third me. Time. Anyway, <laughs> we need to find out is the sheep a thing? But you know what? Even if it isn't, it's a thing to us. Which again, well, to me, I mean, it's sheep looking back at him. He stares at the sheep, right? He longingly stares at the at these paintings, but that one in one. specific. Yes. yes, but he's coming to that realization, though, is he not? Throughout the season, yeah. Did you? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Austin for a second. I had a note here that said he is setting his own prison. And the reason why I said that was because through him talking to Ship and Ship asking about them having kids and Austin is just saying, I don't know if she's, if she's going to be ready. Right. Doesn't reference really why Sue doesn't want to have kids. Um, and maybe you wouldn't right in the conversation, like, is he that close to ship? Like, would he share that? But like, I was just like, oh, you're waiting for her to be ready. Oh, that's, that's yeah, because didn't they have a whole conversation about Sue not wanting to have kids? Sue actually, yeah, Sue told him, opened up to him. Remember it was the whole, can we be honest with each other? And she told him she's terrified of having children because her mother died in childbirth. And he was okay with it. And like. Yeah. And it's so it's really interesting because you see this need that he has, which plays out in season three. And I completely understand it. But at the same time, later in one of these two episodes, when he goes back to tell Sue that those two twins or those two young women are coming to the house, it's like they never talked. I mean, not to be like an Austin apologist, because we all know I would be the first. (laughs) But (laughs) the one and only. No, go ahead. I feel like I feel like. Austin has some of the most drastic changes throughout each season. And Mm -hmm. what if this is just a chapter in his life where even though he embraced it and accepted it before that, that was a part of their marriage that they weren't going to have any children because she was scared. But I mean, a part of him would probably hope that she would be ready one day and thinking that she would come around. And now he's worried about her not coming around while he's talking to ship. Yeah. But he doesn't talk to her about it. He doesn't go to her and say, look, I know you told me that you're terrified because your mom died, but listen, I really like, he doesn't ask her. He's, he's buying into the patriarchy. He just decided that he's going to have these two girls as his faux children or his whatever. And he doesn't go to her and say, look, I know we talked about this. He starts to, but then he doesn't give her any space. He doesn't give her any agency at all again. And you see really great acting I thought from Ella where her voice was lower when she's like what are you doing and great I'll be reminded of like my horrible you know upbringing and regardless of how that sounds or how that feels like her you can hear her voice in her stomach and then when she sucks it up her voice goes up like an octave 
And she's like, well, I guess you made up your mind already. And like buttons it up. And he didn't give her any choice but to do that, in my opinion. I mean, and if we're going to talk about the fact that Austin had a really drastic change over the three seasons, so does Sue. They both have really, really drastic changes. So, But that brings me to my point, though. Everybody is drastically changing into who they are becoming at this point in their life, Austin and Sue included, considering that they're both changing and she's learning how to cope with her internal battles and he's trying to deal with his and they're not connecting with each other on that level. It's simply just miscommunication. Like they're not talking to each other the way but that miscommunication they should on as whose a couple. End? There's always, there's always one that is. No, no, it's on both of their ends. It is on both of their ends because she, no matter how painful had the option to bring that up to him and express that, because we see later in I Like a Look of Agony, right, that Austin has no idea about the baby. He's completely shocked. Okay, but okay, so, but and here's the thing. she has to say she's been raped. Yeah, but here's the thing. Yes. And yes. Here's, no, okay, mm-hmm. let's not go there. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. She did vocalize saying she did not want to have babies because her mother died in childbirth. That is not miscommunication on her end. That is miscommunication on his end because he never said, hey, I want to have a kid. Is that is that cool? Are we cool now? Like, there was never any mention yeah. of that. So, like, I feel like, yes, they've both gone through drastic changes, but I don't ever feel like at any point in time Sue ever dropped the ball on communication. I I feel like even when, when she was getting walked all over, she was like, well, I guess you made up your mind, right? Like, she just had to cope with what it, what was going on. Yeah, yeah, she did. She had to cope with what was going on. And he always had the executive decision. But she was really pulling strings long before that and orchestrating her own thing. Now, I say it's a miscommunication error on her part. Yes, she made it abundantly clear that she didn't want to have children because she feared dying in childbirth. And that is completely relevant. And her situation beyond that was completely relevant but she had an opportunity to communicate with him the pain she was going through and she chose not to she did though what why does a victim have to keep saying oh remember all the pain i'm in remember i told you i was in pain also i just want to say really quick i completely think you're wrong about the fact that she was manipulating to use that pregnancy because otherwise why wouldn't she have told austin if it was if he if they had if they had like consummated their marriage or before the marriage why wouldn't she say that why wouldn't she start the manipulation and we would have seen it so i have to say i think you're wrong i don't think it was austin's baby i don't think they went that far and otherwise why wouldn't she have said so yeah i mean if she did it if she did it to save her own ass i mean i i I feel for her because like, dude, no woman should have to go through that period. But like, yeah, like her having to tell him like, oh, I lost the baby or whatever. Like, oh, when the hell were you pregnant? Like, (laughs) yeah. So I don't, I don't know, Jess, I'm not, I'm not on that train with you. I mean, I will say this though, when they do start communicating is in, I mean, obviously when they come together in season three, they find a way. So yeah, they're not she she's not exactly an open vulnerable you know young woman anymore i feel like she's just like okay i'm gonna make the best out of this i'm gonna make my world 
like I'm going to start my salon and like I just don't I also just don't think it's her job to keep saying oh by the way because women die in childbirth now and back then I don't have the number but it was people always died in childbirth like childbirth is like insanely dangerous in a lot of ways and perfectly natural but like something can always go wrong I mean to the point and where like I think people forget that to the point where like Aztecs I mean because I, I come from Aztecs they they honored their their women and if the women died in childbirth they were technically considered dying as warriors oh I, you know I've been there for childbirth and I will tell you I it's amazing it is miraculous completely organic but at the same time it's insane it's like uh yeah i i could um, never i could never all, props to all the women having babies my hat is tipped to you because i could not yeah so but i mean i do hear what you're saying jess and i do agree like austin is starting he's trying to find things out he's starting to realize that he's living this false life and he's being regretful i think he could have made better choices but at the same time you do see him like really starting to struggle of like what the hell am i doing you know like, I think he's a good, he's a good person inside, you know, and he's trying yeah. this off. I mean, we see it, trying to do we best. see it at the end of season three. I mean, he is, he is a great person. He is a brilliant person. Good dad. Good dad. Someone who finds his voice eventually. I just feel like now in the in-between phases, he was, I mean, we all kind of like self-destruct before we can reconstruct ourselves. Well, I mean, Sue's going to do it soon mm -hmm. too, if not. She's already made that bad choice with Sam. If if she if not in season four in episode four, which this time I was like, oh <laughs> yeah, they both went they both went to a ball. That's interesting. I thought it was after the opera, but this time I'm like, oh Sue. <laughs> um, so yeah. Anyway, to your point, they're making they're making poor choices. Can we talk about Henry? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um. The whole thing about Henry and the printing press, I was like, what's the historical reference for this? So there were two African-American owned and run newspapers at that time. They both folded. The one that they might be referencing is, where is it? The North Star, which was founded by Frederick Douglass. And it, uh, the other one was called Freedom. So they didn't last very long. I don't know how, how thick that thread is that connects everything. Um, but you know where he's uh, where Emily picks up the paper and is reading about the political power of slave owners. That was an actual article written by Frederick Douglass. Yo, that's freaking neat. That's I love that. I love that we're connecting all this thread. Even like I just mentioned him during the seance little. Yeah, I know. I know. That's why I was like kind of holding back. But like I'm incredibly interested in hearing about the African American experience and really diving in because I think I've said 400 times I was so Emmy Sue like focused. That I was like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know about that. I didn't even know they had their own regimen. Like, I'm excited to to learn more. But I thought that was a cool fact. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, this is also when Emily discovers that Henry's a writer, too, in this moment where yeah. she picks up the paper for the first time. Yeah. Because she, she makes mention, I don't subscribe to this. You know, I've never seen it before. But what was Henry's response? The paper is for the people. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't even call himself a writer. He never did. Yeah. He was a humble man. Yeah. But you no, know, but his words were powerful. Think of the bravery of doing that in that time. 
you think of like looking at Frederick Douglass and I don't know as much about him as I'm going to learn about him, but like, it just, it just makes me think of all the things that I didn't learn when I was in school. And again, we're not going to get into the, the current political situation. I mean, about... I'm thinking about the fact that he was over here attending seances, like he was out here rubbing elbows. Yeah. I think the acting is so good and the fear in Betty and, and just like thinking what a huge chance that like what a chance you're taking by doing that. And kudos to Austin for backing that because Austin could have been screwed royally as well if anybody ever found out. So, you know, Austin investing in that again, we're seeing his heart. We're seeing that part of him that's trying to put good in the world. Well, and speaking of Betty's fear for a second, I love that we get to see as the season goes on that, Betty is fearful for more than one reason, but Hattie is not. Yeah. Hattie has no fucks left. <laughs> like she goes off every chance she gets. Right. She's out here uh, she's, sprinkling her black girl magic everywhere. We got to love it. She was going off when she walks into the barn, right? Like she was going off to Henry and uh, Austin was, you know, pulls the veil off of the printing press, blows yeah. her mind a little bit. Yeah. But I just think it's interesting that Betty is so scared because she ultimately sees what could happen because she sees the bigger picture as where Hattie is looking at a smaller frame. Mm -hmm. She's thinking about the moment and yeah, what and they can do now. You were going to say we're, you were bummed out that you didn't see what? Hattie in season three. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's going to come back. And then I was like, where is she? And I, I love the storyline. I love that we really invested in Henry and Betty and the family and that dynamic and what it, you know, again, exploring like not only that black regimen that I had no idea was there, the relationship to Higginson and then just civil war in general, but then I did miss Hattie. Do we she... know if Ayo is still in the writer's room for season three? Uh, good look. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what about Emily's writer's block, right? It's a media. writing a limerick. <laughs> Maggie sorry Maggie is a north star for An another Emily, person for sure. in the writer's room yep oh gotta yeah I love gotta love these women our women in 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 our writer's room in our Dickinson writer's room we, we love to see it and they're all freaking hysterical hysterical <laughs> yes I wish I was in Brooklyn right now so I could go watch Sophie Zucker on stage yeah. Um, I just want to say, I'm not sure that everybody that listens to the podcast knows how it works, but um, that is the writer's room is due to Elena. And what usually happens when you're a showrunner is that uh, the um, streaming company that you're working for or the production company um, or the studio will have approved writers, which is people that are proven that have written, right? Because you can't just hire anybody and then they get in a writer's room because it could be very intense. Um, but this putting together is all Elena and then Apple kind of signing off on it. But like, she just went, yeah, she just did such an amazing job to get a diverse, you know, amazing writer room that, you know, she did. And she took a lot of first time writers as well. Like speaking to typically a showrunner, um, you know, oversees the writer's room there, but, but Elena is different in this way. Because I feel like she she even made mention a few times that she hired new writers, writers who have not yet been able to show what they can do. 
she hired for Dickinson. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, I mean, I'm looking at the writers right now and they all have like, they've all done something, but, but, um, oh, but okay. at the same time, like I'm, I mean, that's the thing is that Apple, if, if somebody has never done anything before, then that is like kudos to Apple for doing that because they are investing like millions of dollars in it. And so, um, well, I mean, that's what Apple TV plus was initially started for is to give new people a space to create Yeah, new directors, new showrunners, new writers, new actors, even. Yeah. What is the actress that played Hattie? What was, what, what's her name? It's, uh, Ayo. Ayo. Okay. I am looking. Anabiri. Let me see. Dickinson 2021. She wrote 10 episodes. Oh, what? That's interesting. She played Hattie in six and she wrote 10. And I won't go into the breakdown. She also has like quite a resume before this. And she also has a resume in, in television, but mm-hmm. at the same time, like it's still really cool to get, you know, to get all these voices in the room and to say, I need to have people of color. I need to have women like pretty amazing. Are we ready to de- jump into episode four or guide us through the maze queen the maze. Okay. So let's talk about episode four. The Daisy follows soft the sun. First thing we see, what is it? Emily's writer's block and her not realizing she's really got writer's block until Emily. Oh, until Maggie says it right. And all because she gave one poem to one editor for one newspaper, the panic that set in and it completely blocked her off. I don't know any artist who hasn't experienced that to some degree. Especially dealing with somebody like Sam, who's like, oh, you need to let me publish. Everybody's like, you need to get published. And Sam's like, great, I'll put it in my pile. And then they have that shot where the poem, the crumpled up poem is just sitting on the, on the lounge. I mean, he starts the, the panic. Like he starts the whole thing of like, you know, where he's like, oh, great. Thanks. After pushing her and pushing her. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit anticlimactic for her. And that's why she was so floored, I think, because, you know, him being so blase about it and her just being like, I literally struggled with this for forever. And I gave you what? a piece of myself and you're not well, it's taking a power it seriously. Play too. He's like, you're a genius. Oh my God. You just oh, yeah. wrote a poem in front of me. That's, you know what, you know what I could do for you. And then he does this power play with his little grape eating where he's like, okay. Yeah. And he hides behind yeah. feminism as his reason. Yeah. Josh Whedon. Yeah. Um, no, totally. I swear when his music comes on, I'm like, Ugh. and I'm like, did they do that on purpose? Cause I do not like that music choice also. And then I'm like, I really don't like him. Like, and I think I've said why I think I've seen and met a lot of Sam's throughout my life. <laughs> We're kind of blood suckers. I'm laughing at the, at the freaking uh, tweet that <laughs> I put out. <laughs> of us reacting to her saying she likes Sam I think more was, than Ben and us just flipping I think what out. she meant was she dislikes Sam less than she dislikes Ben or Ben was more of a threat but the way she said it and caught us off guard dude Robin I just went to the basement <laughs> I, went to the, I went to the I zoom the basement floor. I was like yeah, I, was the- I gotta go before I say that yeah that was really funny um 
but but i mean that speaks to the master submission editor mm-hmm. editor writer thing i'd say mm-hmm. right because she even states it when she's talking to maggie it's like he's my master and i'm supposed to submit to him <laughs> and how grossed out she and was maggie, by that no and then maggie goes maggie goes yeah some people were <laughs> kind of into that, that thing. yeah not not maggie throwing people's kinks out like that maggie's like i'm sorry if you met this oh, woman sue who lives next door to you of course, of course you I did. <laughs> of course she said master. Do we Sue. have any doubts now? Just like, do we have any doubts who's the top in that relationship? And I'm going to bring it back. When you guys were both they like, were oh my God. God. Okay. Anyway, um, there's no doubt. Emily <laughs> is such a bottom. Switches, okay? you got, what planet do you live on? It. You just okay. want Emily to be a top. I'm sorry. Emily tops a neck. That's all Emily does. Emily's like, oh, I got your neck. And then, and then she's like, okay, this is, you know oh what? God, we are digressing. I got, I got lost at Emily's a pillow princess. Eventually, <laughs> I'm sure they moved into that. But again. I'm not about to call Emily a pillow princess. Again. Okay, the maze. Two little points. First of all, I didn't realize last time part of it was in her imagination. Right? When she goes, are these hedges a lot bigger? I was like, how did I miss that that was part of her imagination. And then we saw behind the scenes that the watermelon dress originally turned up when Emily was shooting the maze scene. And so what I was wondering, right, we got the sun and the daisy thing going on. Like, where was Sue in all this? Was it part of her imagination? And she sees Sue and she goes to follow Sue, but she runs into Sam, who puts her back in her daisy position again, even though she's like, I don't know about that. I really want to know. Because they're obviously shot something because there's no reason they didn't shoot season two and season three together. So there's no reason for Miss Ella Hunt to be in that watermelon dress. I'm in shambles. I'm in shambles. When I saw it, when I, I know, saw that I behind know. the scenes like, what did shot, I was like, what is going on? I need to know what the heck happened. I need to know what the dialogue was. What, what, what Dickinson box said. Weird yeah. trippy thing happened in Emily's freaking mind. I totally. Okay. The other thing that little yellow bird that we see in season three is that the same bird that emily sees that her dad doesn't see did you notice that they all because every single bird he's like did you see that one and she's like yeah and she's like look at that one he's like yeah and then the very last one no the second to last one she sees this little yellow bird and she's like looks at it and then he says look at this one and he never sees that one i wonder if it's the same bird the same bird that she sees after the inferno it also and after yes. her her aunt Lavinia's funeral and basically the bird that she sees through all of geez Louise right but I could be totally wrong because I haven't like compared them but one of our guests who I can't we can't announce yet until it's scheduled because that's not cool I will be asking this question to see if they have the answer to that but yeah I was like was that the bird not as big as the mermaid thing but I was like what <laughs> Well, it could be metaphorical too that that's her first sign of hope that, that... yeah that's yeah. what i wonder I mean... and then did she see sue and then of course i bring it back to sue then did she see sue? <laughs> i'm not obsessed you're obsessed um <laughs> <laughs> i'm not crying you're crying i'm not crying you're crying we 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 go to robin's house and she has like this whole mood board with like yarn and like the pinpoints and all these pictures of the watermelon dress <laughs> i feel like i feel like 
I feel like our whole community on Twitter, which I think Elena said this this week, I don't know if you saw it, but she was like, Twitter has neighborhoods. Hopefully ours is protected from you know what that we I don't want to talk about. Um, but like, I feel like our whole like fan family, we're all doing that. We're like, did you see this? Did you see that? Did you? We're all doing this detective work. Did you did you both see the for your consideration panel that um, Apple did with Elena and Ella and Anna? That and Haley was not at Adrian. because she was working on her music. Yeah, it was only a half an hour, but still. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Auntie, no shade. You know what? I, who knows? I mean, maybe she was letting other people shine. I don't know. But uh, I mean, she also didn't go to the arcane one either. Oh, she didn't? No. Well, she I also mean, sent in a video. She sent in a video for both of them. I mean, it. you know, who am I to say? Do I make I albums? mean, look, she is a busy queen, okay? She's busy. But Elena was even talking about how, you know, you see the threads. Like, she was talking about all the threads, which we all knew and what we've been finding. And she's like, you can go back to the very first episode and you see We just keep threads. finding more threads. All yeah. these damn threads. All these dang threads. I feel like at the end of this... Elena was just like Vinny. She's like, have I been knitting all day? Oh my God. That's With still all one of my days. favorite lines and shots. Have I have I been knitting all day? <laughs> all these damn threads. That's how we feel right now. Trying to find all these threads up in season one, two, and three. Oh my God. I did want to say with Mrs. Dickinson, like we start to kind of see her rebel a little against this relationship that she has or the, the power dynamic in her relationship with Edward. But when it comes to her kids, it's still like, they're going to be the death of me. And then when Lavinia comes in and is like, Mrs. Dickinson turns and says, oh, it's our good daughter or <laughs> something. And Lavinia's like, yeah, about that, about getting engaged. And she's like, Mrs. Dickinson says, I've had a hard day. You're, you are getting married. <laughs> she's still in her insulated world of like, like we all are, right? Of like how everything's affecting her. But I thought that was great character, right? Because we're starting to see this character growth in one, but then we also see literally the- when you when you said uh Mrs. Dickinson is suppressed, I'm like suppressed, depressed, in distress. Like she just she's just been going through it all three yeah. seasons, okay? Abject bottomless despair. Oh my god. She she's been telling everybody the whole time. <laughs> Nobody believed her till season three. Jesus. Oh, it's so true. Um, okay, so you you opened up on the maze shot there. Um, so who was Emily in the maze with, though? Who was help helping guide her? Her to find her voice. You mean or Frederick Law Olmsted? By the time the the shrubbery got big and she she was in her imagination, I'm pretty sure he wasn't there. And I feel like this is inner dialogue that was playing out in this. I mean, it probably maze. was. Yeah, but he was the medium to her finding her voice i mean i think the conversation that they have is relevant to the entire season of her struggle right i mean emily says i'm the daisy and he's the sun and without the warmth of his approval i can't grow talking about sam but what olmstead says is what where i find the relevance to the rest of the season i mean he says opinion is a flitting thing it's a hideous distraction from the beauty of your craft the audience is irrelevant. The work itself is the gift, not the praise for it. Refuse to be the daisy. Which now that like we mention it, like we see this go on all the way up until season three too, yeah. when she's writing to Higginson. Yeah. And Sue is like, dude, I thought I was your only audience when she was pissed about it. And you, you see Emily go through this like 
submergence of of realizing yo like this is my work yeah this is my work and yeah. not caring about the audience or the opinion yeah the whole idea about getting lost like him suggesting that that's what you have to do and then it's like he's talking about it's just like with you and your flow like everything else disappears and then you get lost totally lost and then and then he says when you're famous you will never get lost again and of course yeah, that's, that's going to play out later when she is also invisible but like yeah so anyway that was that those were my takeaways of like the the nuggets that were in there about another her. episode where her hair was down <laughs> yeah yes Oh, and going back for a second, you talked about that that moment between Mrs. Dickinson and Lavinia at the at the end of the episode, right? Mm -hmm. But what Mr. Dickinson says is what catches my attention. What's he that? says, you, you see, people speak different languages of love, Lavinia. Yes, I have that note too. <clears throat> that was She's one like... of my favorite lines. I was like, yes, okay. Well, especially what it's in reference to. He's like, he's like I courted you or like I I was I was romantic and she's like you said that we would something like he sent her a letter yeah a butter, he sent right her a letter. yep <laughs> that's his love language and we're gonna we, make we would make frugal frugal mates yes oh Edward oh my god okay well also one of my favorite Jane moments and and Mrs. Dickinson moment is like I swear to god Edward if you call me mother one more time <laughs> like, you noticed you noticed after that he kept calling her m it was really oh funny. actually actually i didn't he did he says it for the rest of the episode he calls her m he doesn't call her mother anymore yeah well and then we start to head into i mean soon we start to see what is it and definitely in the opera scene where they're becoming kind of they're finding each other a little bit more as a couple mm -hmm. and you know you get to see the playful side of that but uh to me, that's their cutest scene together when they're like busy trying to figure out how to escape the opera because neither oh, one of them like it. it. And then, you know, of course, Vinnie mansplains the opera to ship. And, oh my and God. quotes. I mean, we'll talk about this. And quotes, Richard, pretty woman. Yes. <laughs> that's like, Elena, are you kidding me? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if she was, I mean, maybe another writer brought that in. But like, again, just like the depth and like the humor all the historic it's just it's insane unpacking this like i just i literally had no Everything idea is woven how much how how much more there was to this series <laughs> until we started rewatching it like i was telling May, i was telling my wife i was like you know we talk about for every one thing we talk about we could talk about 10 other things like there's just not enough time and a lot of a lot of our community talks about it on twitter etc but so rich such a rich thing like the more and more you watch the more you learn too yeah yeah i mean because i never i never would have known that frederick frederick douglas was out here attending seances like that never would have crossed no totally no it's uh and then what's crazy is like you see the transition from like seances like in the 19th century right but like in the 14th hunt like in the 1400s like they were burning women alive for being witches like yeah what make it make sense <laughs> you can't i mean witchcraft was hung in history Ooh. emily says that oh <gasps> witchy queen witchy queen okay all right how about we take a little break and let's go talk to bye and see what she's got for us 
All right, everybody, welcome back. We are super excited to invite on our show. I'm going to try to pronounce the name correctly. Virginie Bonnet. Oh is God, that close? This is perfect. Oh, this is excellent. Even okay. the last name. That's perfect. I got it. Yes. Yes. Um, thank you so much for joining us. You are already an extended part of our family at the podcast and your threads are legend. I tweeted that last week because it's so true. I look forward whenever I see a post of yours. I'm like, hang on, I got to go do something. Just love all your details. But thank you for joining thank you. us. Thank you so much. And then to finally be with you all and, and sharing more than just a few words in a tweet. It's it's so man, I'm so I'm really excited, really excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what brought you to Dickinson. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm from France. I'm from the south of France, um, you know, where the lavender fields are. Um, I am a developer advocate for, for Zoom, actually, for, for the mm. company Zoom. And um, yeah, and I've been living in New York for 10 years with my partner. We have a house in Westchester, which is three hours south of Amherst, <laughs> not oh. too far. Uh, very lucky, yeah. lucky to be, yeah, living there. And um, yeah, and we're there with uh, our three cats. Awesome. And the viewers can't see it, but right now you are, with your virtual background, you are sitting in one of the most beautifully uh, designed sets, which is a conservatory, yeah? Which is a conservatory. It is it is my favorite image of the entire show, all seasons, all episodes. Um, I'm just in love with that picture. I have it on my cell phone, on my computer mm. background. I have it on my Apple Watch. I have it everywhere. And I just can't. I I hope that I get to talk to Marina Parker about that picture at some point. Yes, oh. I absolutely love that scene. Yeah, it's so gorgeous. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you fell in love with Dickinson, when you fell in love. And also, you go so deep into every detail, which is so amazing. Why so much research? What what drives your passion? So how it started, I think I remember it was with the Amisu scenes. And it was last year. So I'm very new to all this, right? I'm mm -hmm. new to Dickinson, the show. I'm new to uh, the research. I have so much more to, you know, to read and, and, to, and to learn. Uh, it started at the end of the summer of 2021, um, mm -hmm. if I remember well. So just a few months ago. And um, when I saw the scenes, I was like, oh, my God, I need to binge watch that. And, and I did for the first two seasons. And um, I was ready for season three. I think that started in November. Um, so that, that's, I think, how it started. It, it gets very blurry now, you know, between <laughs> the real Dickinson research and the show. Uh, but, that's, but that's how it started. And then um, why, why this research and why, why this passion? Um, I'm just someone, you know, if I get passionate about something, I get obsessed. Um, I just can't stop it. Ask my partner about it. It's just, um, she can't hear me talk about Dickinson anymore. It's just, um, <laughs> it's all about Dickinson right now. I don't sleep. I don't eat. I don't, I just breathe Dickinson. Um, and it's the reason why I think that's a very good question because it made me think about why Dickinson, you know, it's the first time I get so into someone who's not even <laughs> living anymore um, it, it, it's, it's because when I thought about it, it's because she feels, um, out of reach, right? She feels elusive and complex and, and so special. 
Um, but yet I feel so close to her mm. um, in terms of, um, or the idea I have of her, right? Because I'm, I don't know who she was exactly and no one will ever know. Uh, but I can relate to so many uh, feelings, um, especially her love and her relationship for not, not not Susan, but yes, yeah, Susan as well, but for nature. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, you know, the, the relationship she has with, with nature. Um, and she is she she is putting words on so many feelings that I've had that I've felt for so long that it 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 really talks to me. Um and I know I will never grasp her a hundred percent. Um I know there's so much to look into, to discover, to read about her. Um, I feel like I'll need the rest of my life to really, you know, you really get to that point. And I think I will never get to that point. Um, and I think that's why I'm hooked. You know, it's, it's like constant yeah. intellectual and emotional yeah. stimulation. And, and it's a sort of a thirst that um, I can't seem to, to quench and yeah. I will never quench. So I think that's my answer to, yeah, to that question. Yeah. Dickinson forevermore. Yeah, right. I, I feel like all three of us, we've talked about this, Jess and Jay and I, about how there's, it's just so rich with the history, with the mystery in the history and the poetry. Um, one of the things I was going to say is that everything for me is very experiential and very kind of visceral. Um, I'm not a very analytical person. I love like uh, practical um practical theory in filmmaking like i love diving into that but i don't usually get into an analytical space with a lot of things and what i love is that like interacting with jess and jay and with you on twitter and other people like you take me into this more analytical space but it's all very connected do you know what i mean so for me it's it's very fulfilling in that way because your brains will go someplace that mine won't and i'll be like what wait but it's still connected on an emotional and a very visceral level um, which is what I feel like Emily's poetry is all the time for me. Um, it's just amazing the connections that have, you know, that this show and that Emily and her work have really created for everyone. Yeah, visceral is such a powerful word that I haven't used yet. I, I love that you're you're using that to, to describe how you're feeling about all this. Um, it, it, it is it is all this. Uh, how my brain works, I I, I don't know. I'm... I'm well, I have a, um, a master's degree in Amer American literature, um, mm. linguistics, and I'm passionate about languages. Wow. And so analyzing all this, and it's also, you know, I'm all about contrasts and, and dichotomies. And um, I have a degree in biology. I studied sciences, but I also, you know, love technology and, and or I, I have a master's degree in literature, right? So I'm all about um, contrast. And I love the opera, but I also love reggaeton right? yeah I'm, I'm all about this and so um that that's how I would say it. that's how my brain works it, if I'm if I'm passionate about something I get very deep into details mm -hmm. but then you know when I studied li literature I never studied poetry uh so this is very new to me oh really and I discovered yes I I just love it and I and I found out that just like you would uh Robin and I because I know you you know a bit about production and, and all this but the way you would analyze a, a movie or a show, um, that's how I learned how to analyze a book, right? Or um, the way you would analyze a painting. It's, it's, it's art and you just, you can analyze a book the, the, the way you analyze um, 
a painting, uh, the way, you know, the emotions that you get from a painting or a movie or, so you can do the same for, for uh, any, pretty much, pretty much anything or the way you analyze a poem. Um, So I think that's how I see things. Um, And then I love analyzing words uh, and, and languages. So I remember you just, you had a tweet, was it last week? where you were analyzing a word and I was like, well, this is what it means to me. And you were like, no, that's great. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, and it, it, it's funny cause it made me realize that I always relate everything back to experience and my experience, especially with Emily. It's funny how I'm constantly thinking about how, like what it brings out in me because it just, I, I've never had anything that is like poetry or a language that has brought so much out of me and helped me discover so much about me in a different way, you know? Right, right. And it, it, that word was the word this. Yeah. <laughs> it was the word this. Yes. And, um, but when you think of how Dickinson would pick every single word, but every single one with a purpose um, and, you know, a d- different meaning, if you look at the lexicon and you really analyze all this, just like you would analyze a bug under a microscope, or, you know, you can literally do that with her poetry. And so the word this can be analyzed in so many ways. And she did not pick that word just out of nowhere. There's, there's a meaning. There's meaning behind every single choice of word. And so you can do that with this, or you can do that with the word blue or the word sue or, you know, whatever word you want to, to analyze. So it was a little surprising for people to see, hey, but she's talking about a word and it's a word that's very common and usually there's really no meaning behind it, but there is. Yeah. Um, to me, at least. Yeah, totally. No, it opened up. And again, I thank you because it just opened up a different way for me to be like, oh, yeah. It's kind of <laughs> infinite, right? And then because we don't yeah. know exactly why she picked each word. Jess, I see you wanting to say something. Well, it's not necessarily to say something. I'm just like in very much a grants with Vi here. I mean, everything is, everything Emily did had intent, everything, whether it was just with her words or with how she, you know, presented herself, everything was intentional. So, I mean, I break things down analytical, you know, this, um, it's kind of how we got started, but um, yeah, no, I can definitely break down her poetry like that in the same way. I think just, just like the show. her letters. Mm. No, I, I, I was going to say, I mean, I think just like the show Dickinson, I mean, everything is very much methodically placed. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a meaning for everything. Even whenever you see something that you think is out of sorts, it's, it has a meaning and it's there intentionally. So I, I really love the reflection of the Dickinson show um, and Emily Dickinson's poetry, everything is just methodically placed. Oh, yeah. I, I just have to say real quick that like, when you're in production, everything is approved by a director and a producer on set. So everything that's set, right? And then you look at the frame and the frame is set. But absolutely, Jay, everything is very intentional and checked in. I remember I worked with the director one time. And um, he was a first time director and he uh, was very used to being like a one person, everything. And then he got on set and it was a low budget movie, but everybody kept coming up to him and he, they were like, well, do you want this blue or this blue? And he's like, I, I, that one. And then after a while, I was a first AD. And then he kept, like, after the first day, he's like, 
I was like, are you okay? And he's like, everybody keeps asking me questions about everything. And I was like, Sam, you're the director. <laughs> like, They're gonna ask you for everything. So yeah, absolutely every single detail. I mean, I think to myself right now, Jess's sheep theory, like now anytime I'm watching and rewatching the episodes, I'm always looking out for a sheep. <laughs> I mean, I stated the theory though already right it's not like yeah. a full-length theory yeah but like you did right and we were touching on it in season three and I remember that one episode in season one where I was like yo the sheep did you see the sheep in the background she's like I didn't even notice it this time I was like so now my eyes are peeled for you know the little things like that yeah well that's what's cool too is that there's intention from Elena and the writers, there's intention by Marina and her team, there's intention by the actors, and then there's the viewer interpreting it. And then we also have our own intentions behind our interpretation, right? So like, there's been times where I've seen conversations, I think I saw something where Ella was like, yeah, the fans are picking out things that I didn't even think about, but she had performed it. And we had connected it in a certain way that made sense to her, but she hadn't actually, that wasn't the intent behind what she was doing. So yeah, so many layers. And speaking of layers, Vi, so have you ever done this with a show before? Is Dickinson the first show that you've ever gone this deep with and gone to like the yeah. museum? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely the first time. Um, thank God for my partner because it's 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 quite intense. Um, <laughs> it is the first time. Yes, I've never been so into um you know and, and living or, or that person's art or, um it, it is definitely the first time um but also not just because of who emily dickinson was i think this show is really something um mm. it it is you know elena spent a lot of time with martha and smith uh, who spent a whole day with the writers for example so they, they put so much into the show from who uh, my Emily Dickinson was, right? And so um, it is it is quite something to to see such a production. the The other movie I would recommend, the only one is Wild Nights with Emily, but it yeah. doesn't have this this Emily Dickinson as a rainbow, you know, full of colors and 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 um, and, and life and beauty that Dickinson put in in this to me it's like elena painted a painting it's literally something like that you know marina parker yeah. in in the decor also and and the team with whether it's the music um or the uh the dresses all this is so it's a reflection of who emily dickinson was for me mm -hmm. um breathing life and and energy and wit and humor and um positively positivity and, and and all these things um, yeah so it, it is a first time i'm just connecting so much with both the the show and um the real emily dickinson yeah and how many times have you been to the museum i've never been to the museum actually wait well you've been I've outside been of it though outside of it okay okay so the exteriors <laughs> you're right because you've it's been to the graveyard different. okay uh, yes so i I went to Amherst twice. Okay. Uh, within two months, I think I went in December and February, um, something like this. So I stayed outside because it is closed um, for renovations. So I'm just waiting for it to open again in the spring. 
Uh, but I've been to Amherst twice. The second time I decided to just drive there on my own and spend a whole weekend there, go to the library, uh, one of them. Uh, the Amherst College Library was closed as well, so I have to go back. Um, I went to the museum outside. I went to the Jones Library, which is amazing. I went to, um, I also went to see um, Mount Holyoke as well. Oh, or Holyoke, I think that's Holyoke. Is Holyoke, I think, yeah. Yeah, so I saw uh, Mary Lyon's grave <laughs> and all this, which is, it's, it's a 10 minute drive from Amherst. It's not far. Uh, okay. But yes, I, I, I went twice. Uh, so far, I went to the two cemeteries as well, um, yeah. twice, and lay and put some pictures there. I saw so I yes, I brought flowers and um, you know a rose for um, for Sue mm. and uh, white flowers for Emily and poems. Um, there's someone who sent me a beautiful poem as well, and I brought it there. Um, I brought a few things. Yeah, that's twice. so beautiful. I think the whole <laughs> fandom was like just like so grateful to you <laughs> for doing that like it just it just felt so beautiful to have that physical like vicarious physical contact sort of with uh with the territory um well and i know so many people are so far you know they will yeah. never make it to amherst uh, and so i'm by being so lucky to be so close it's just it's so important to me to be thinking about other people and um and seeing how we can connect and, and how we can, you know, just um, help and share everything I'm, I'm able to see there. And, and that's my intent with, with everything I'm doing on Twitter. Um, I'm not focusing on the number of followers. I'm just, I'm getting, um, I opened my account in November of 2021, which is four months ago. Yeah. And just to share what I saw in Amherst and just to connect with people who want to talk about it too and who are, as passionate as I am about Wickington. That's the only purpose of, of my Twitter account. Yeah, I think we're all sort of in that same place and it's pretty amazing the interactions there and the love. Um, speaking of love, besides Emily, what character and real life person um, in her life intrigues you the most? Well, real life, obviously Susan Gilbert. And I think yes. you and I share that passion about the badass. <laughs> she's I mean there's no Emily without, without Susan um you know and I just can't wait for Martha Nell Smith to yes. publish her book this year and I think she's focusing on Sue so I'm really looking forward to that wait and it's then, coming out this I'll, year Vi? I think she said yes I, she told me at the end of the of 2022 Oh so I'm just gosh. patiently waiting. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. I just got goosebumps because I am. Yeah, we definitely yeah, share that. that. I want to know so much about real life Sue and like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. So there's that. And so obviously Susan, um, and then I would say Kit Turner as their real life uh, character. So both women, I'm interested mostly in, in women in, in Dickinson's uh, life. So Kate Turner uh, is another one. And then the second character, and I think uh, Jan and I talked about that in, um, in another um, um, podcast recently, but um, my second favorite is Abby, Abby Wood. And I got to meet, <laughs> exactly. Jay's holding up notes, everybody. I got my notes. I got my notes. I'm so curious about that. I'm, I was so looking forward to, to this. So Abby is, 
Uh, first of all, Abby Wood existed, right? She was an interesting woman who spent most of her life in Syria, actually. So can you imagine that at the time? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, she's, yeah, she's someone I really want to, you know, learn more about. She was one of the five, you know, uh, the, the circle, the circle of five, circle five. Yes. Abby yes. Wood, Abaya <laughs> Root, Harriet Merrill and Sarah Tracy. They were at exactly. Amherst Academy together, the circle of five. Amazing. Oh. That's what Dickinson said. Yeah, the circle of five. So she was an important uh, yeah, friend, you know, Emily. The... Emily described her as the particular friend, whatever that means. Right? <laughs> yes, I saw that too. I was about mm-hmm. to mention that. Oh, I'm so yeah. glad you 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 saw that too. I think yeah, that's, that's I'm like, important. what does that yeah, mean? <laughs> yeah, so no, fun. it's so so important to the to the point where you know there was a time when Emily Dickinson was like secluding herself, right? And she wouldn't accept visitors. And then when Abby came back from Syria from the Middle East, right? She like basically demanded to Emily, she was like, uh, you're gonna see me because what the heck, I'm your old friend. So you're gonna see me. So she let it be known. She's like, you're not gonna seclude yourself from me. I'm gonna come in and you're gonna see me. I think she said the old, you're gonna see me or you're going to- On the basis, yeah. The old fashioned way or something like this. Like you better, you know. She said, she's like, I'm gonna, she's like, I like, she said, um, I'm going to be received on the old basis, like basically because basis. I'm your old. Yeah. That's amazing. I love then, that you came with that. So then Emily. also like when she was in, in the Middle East, she would send Emily Dickinson, you know, some, she would send her some like, yeah, plants and stuff for her, for her herbarium. And in some olive wood, I think is uh, there's strong evidence of that. Um, I'm not sure which one yet. So I need to double check, but yes, yeah, um, she to do that. Yes. So, so, so Abby Wood is very interesting. And, and I, I don't know if the team, uh, you know, the Dickinson team thought about that when special friend or, or particular friend, because she is very special in the show to me. So I love that character because she reminds me of that, you know, Shakespeare's touchstone character. So in Shakespeare's, mm-hmm. as you like it, there's this jester this clever gesture called Touchstone. And Touchstone is throughout the play, he's a way through humor, right? Um, He comments on the other characters and through him, you can understand the truth. You can see better. You can, uh, he contributes to a better understanding of the play. So he's like this clever fool, Touchstone. But if you look into the name of it, like Shakespeare didn't come up with, okay, I'm going to name this guy Touchstone and that's it, right? There's a reason behind that. And I don't know if you know what a touchstone is, but a century ago or two, 200 years ago, I'm, I'm not sure about the date, but people used to use a touchstone as a way to make sure that a certain metal, so for example, a gold coin was actually a true metal, uh, precious metals. So they would just scratch the coin or the metal on that touchstone to reveal the truth, to see if it's actually real gold or not. Oh, wow. There's a way to, there's a way to tell that. <laughs> it's like when you rub when you scratch the, the metal, there's a little dust, some dust yeah. that comes out of it on the stone, on the touchstone. And when you compare with real gold, you can see, okay, this coin is, you know, I can, I can tell this is actually gold. So I'm not, I'm trading that. And I know I'm getting gold and not something that's, you know, fake. And so 
a touchstone, it is, you know, in the chemistry of it and the, the scientific way, that is what it is. It reveals the truth and what real metal is. And so Abby Wood, for me, is that touchstone character where everyone thinks that she's crazy and she is the dumb one, but she is actually the only of the gang. She's the only true one. She's the only character who says things, who reveals the truth about the condition of women, right? In, in the 19th century. Um, she, you know, when she, she says also, when everyone's making fun of Sue. Yes, and I was saying, just thinking that. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's, you know, oh, she's an orphan. And that's so sad. Her whole and family it's, died. It's disgusting. Yeah, her whole family died. And Abby is pausing and she said, well, it's not her fault. Right. And she's like, well, but what are you saying? It doesn't make sense. What you're saying, it doesn't make sense. Like, it's not her fault that she's an orphan, right? So she's there. The only lines that she actually pronounces are, are true lines, you know, and she's empathetic. She is, you know, that amazing episode. Uh, my favorite episode where she, she's in is that um, the asylum. Yeah. I've seen, and it's all about women and women's rights. And when she has yeah. her little uh, blanket that says vote for women, and all this, um, she, she is that type of character to me. And I think I actually prefer Abby to characters like, um, um, Lavinia, which I, I know so many people love, but to me, Abby is quite something. And I got to meet Sophie. Something. Yeah, you did. You went to her show, right? Yeah. Her one woman show. Yes, in Brooklyn. And wow. she's so approachable and such a sweetheart. And her show is such, I was seeing Abby the whole time. I think it's, it's <laughs> crazy. She has that type of humor um, that she put into in, in her character. And she was so sweet, so nice. Um wow. I just, I fell in love with Sophie too when I saw her and, um, and I just saw Abby the, the whole time. Uh, it was, it was quite something. And I oh think she gosh. did such a great job with that character. But she's also she a, a writer on one. the show, right? She was she, in the writer's yes. room. Correct. I forgot to mention that. She actually asked her just to make sure, you know, I said, Hey, you, you weren't, you know, a, a writer on some episodes. Uh, and I know Robin, you, you know, exactly which ones. Um, Cause you're the one who said, yeah, she's, she was a writer for this episode and that one, I think, in a, in a private message with me on Twitter. Yes. Um, sorry to put you in a spot. I, 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 no, I, I don't have it in my that. head, but yes, I do but I think you somewhere have it. that note. <laughs> yes, and so I, I went to her and I said, hey, you wrote those episodes, right? And she confirmed. She said, yes, I did. And I, I said, that's amazing. And I hope you know the impact of you know, what you did on, on so many of us. Um, yeah. I don't know exactly what scenes, but I would imagine, you know, the gang scenes maybe, or scenes that she's in. Sophie's brilliant. Sophie's brilliant. She's just like a powerhouse when it yeah. comes to yeah. both comedic timing and just her brain, like the things. Okay. Obviously if you follow her on Twitter, the things that come out <laughs> of her, of her Twitter, is just, I mean, she's, bold and sassy and no yeah. no remorse for humanity like just, <laughs> <laughs> no the modern abby wood she's the modern i love one. her i love her though she is so bold and unapologetic and like yeah she's, i'm just like you're clinical. my inspiration yeah no clinical she inspires she clinical. me to just like not have a filter because you know why do you need one she teaches actually if you want to uh, go to brooklyn and take some um, acting classes, she is doing that too. Oh my God! So I'm going to do that just to talk to her and be around her. You know? 
I'm like, I feel like that would be detrimental to my um to my personality because I'm already chaotic. So I feel like her chaos and my chaos. Acting can help you harness that. I would learn to love from her, honestly. I would take an acting class with her. I think I think like I I have ma- I'm not gonna say I have mastered acting, but like when I used to work retail, I used to act like I wanted to be there. So I think I, I think I deserve an Oscar for, for that performance alone. You know, the one place I can't act is real life because I was an actor too. And I can't, I like am constantly being called out, especially on Zoom for facial expressions. Like what, Robin? I'm like, what? Oh, like customers, whenever they would tell horrible jokes, I would, boy, I would laugh like, like my paycheck depended on it. Like, Robin, you would be a great actress. I mean, the way you reacted when I said that I preferred Ben to (laughs) Sam (laughs) was just. Oh, my goodness. That wasn't acting. That was real. (laughs) That was a real reaction. That is a whole show in itself. I I don't know. I feel like like we might have to do an entire show to dig into that. Yeah, that's why I wasn't drinking coffee just now when you said it again, because it would have been it would have been a spit take just now. I love it, though. It's so different. It's so different. But we're not going to segue into that. Um, But you can hear some of that on Galaxy of Queers, the show that we were on, the, the episode that we were on which is fabulous and you should shout out to the Mandalorian. shout out um (laughs) oh but one of the things also that we talked about that you mentioned vi on galaxy of queers was color theory for dickinson and in the poetry so i have a feeling that um i mean we know you're going to be back on our show with us so we might not be able to dig into every single thing because i feel like we could talk for about eight hours and probably will but let's dig into (laughs) some of that Take us on a yes. journey. So, yes, there is so much. First on my website, but um, there, there's a lot if you want to go back to it and, and read more than what I picked for today. Mm-hmm. But, but there's a lot. Uh, and I'm not done with that. But maybe I'll start with, you know, how I came up with the idea yeah. of colors and uh, how it started. So it started a few months ago, maybe two months ago, and, and there's someone, a fellow Dickinson fan on Twitter who sent me a private message and sent me an article. Uh, it was about, yeah, it was Emily Dickinson's legacy is incomplete without discussing trauma. Um, and she sent me that article and it was very dark. And she said, do you mind sharing what you what that makes you feel or what you think about that? And so it was mostly about how um, Emily Dickinson is a trauma survivor, but more specifically how um, what the author of the article thinks that she was a victim of sexual assault and more specifically, maybe about her own father. Um, so that was a very dark. Wow. Article. So my, my first reaction to it was, OK, first of all, I have a lot of respect for people who do research who do a lot of research. And that was yeah. a lot of research put into that paper, whether or not I agree with the theory of it, right? I just like it when people say something, but they support it. You yeah. Know, I like this because, or I think, you know, Dickinson felt that way because of that, right? So you support what you say. And that's what the author did. So I have a lot of respect for that. But then um, she is also a um, physician, 
And so I think that people are also, you know, they feel they can sin based on who they are and the, mm-hmm. what experiences they've had or they've been through in life and, and, and all this. And so it made a lot of sense for her to focus on that dark, um, very dark for me, uh, theory. But what it made me feel was actually the opposite. I actually realized, I said, oh my God, I, it is so interesting that when I read that, I feel the opposite and I just see colors. I see how, you know, uh, Emily Dickinson is, is, is a whole rainbow for me. It's a rainbow. Um, to me, she is vibrant. She has energy. She has she's passion. You know, all these intense feelings. And, and um, it was the opposite of, of what, I, what I was reading there. Uh, she's, there's a lot of love and there's a lot of, uh, you know, her connection with nature and her wit and her yeah. humor. And so it started with this. And I, and I realized, I said, well, Emily Dickinson to me is a rainbow. Um, Mm. And it just made sense for me to focus on on colors. Mm. And then when you compare with the show with Dickinson, it's all about colors too. It's so visual. It's colors and okay, music and, and the language and all this, but it's so vibrant and it's yeah. so, and I, I think that's what Elena and, and her team wanted to show, you know, through colors that Emily Dickinson was actually that, or our Emily Dickinson um, was all about, colors and colorful, uh, at least to me, um, and not this dark, sad uh, person in the attic up there, you know, in, in her bedroom. And so uh, that's, that's how, that's how it, it started. And mm-hmm. that's how I started um, writing about all this. Oh, wow. That is really fascinating. Yeah. I, I remember there's this really beautiful uh, picture that you might've shared, somebody shared which it's, it's that, um, it's that picture of Emily. And I, I don't know how to, how do you pronounce that? Drama chair, drama, daguerreotype. Yeah. And it's that picture of her, but it's with like color and rainbow, like all this, like she's, she's basically, um, or she's white with, with a lot of colors in it. And, um, that's what her poetry to me, I feel like when I open up the book, it's just alive. It's complete. Everything's alive. And I read her letters and there's just, there's color and life and love and darkness. Right. And again, that's where the visceral comes in. Right. There's definitely darkness in there, but um, yeah, I feel, I feel the rainbow in a very vivid way with her work. Yeah. That, that image is actually the, I think that's the one that I use for my article about colors Oh, and if, okay. if it's not, if it's the exact um, version of the decorotype, I'm not sure how to pronounce it either. You pronounced um, it right, yeah. Okay, that's <laughs> the one that I found at the Jones Library at, uh, in Amherst um, by a, a specific painter that I talk about on my website as well. But but but, but anyway, yes, I uh, my article that colors has, you know, first I show all those dark pictures of Emily Dickinson in black and white. And then I moved to my color theory where I use all these amazing paintings and versions of her in colors. Um, and I think even, even Haley Steinfeld said, you know, you think of a period piece and your head sometimes goes to black and white, but that's the opposite that they did with, with Dickinson where they put Emily into a different context, which is that new understanding of Emily Dickinson that Martha Nell Smith always talks about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where she was a woman who was, and I love that, that, uh, quote, vividly captured, she vividly captured the spectrum 
of human emotion with her words, mm. right? It's all mm-hmm. about colors. She was not, you know, to so many people for so many years, academics and scholars described her and Mabel also taught as, you know, that depressed, um, dark lady. So, yeah, marketing. Um, so, yes, <laughs> uh, colorless depictions of her. Yeah. Um, well, we are going to talk a little bit more about your website again, but I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now to look at that picture and it's, it's so wonderful. So we'll get to that. Um, there's much more that we can, uh, talk about, you know, in relation with the, uh, the show and Emily Dickinson's poetry as well in terms of colors. Yeah, totally. So how about, um, Emily was a painter. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, to, to me, to me, uh, yes, she, she was like a painter, right? Mm. Uh, she, so her poetry is all about intense feelings. It's about, it breathes life. That's what you said. Um, it's living. She used to go back to it and change words and, you know, she was changing too. And she just, she made all this like a breathable, um, work of art, just like a painter would go back to a painting and just add colors here and there, you know, to, to maybe change it a little. Um, and there are flowers and explosion of colors everywhere. And so um, that I, I love to, to just think of her as a painter because, and I talked about that in a tweet too, where I, I talked about the difference between publishing and printing, which is a very different conversation and we need more hours to talk about that but yeah. <laughs> uh, she did not want to print but she wanted to publish and she published herself uh with her fascicles right she put them together and she yeah. so she published herself but printing means that you take the words and and someone edits them and it's set right mm-hmm. you cannot change something that's in a book it's printed and it doesn't have that idiosyncratic visual of how she was writing her poems, mm-hmm. the words she was adding, but also the way, you know, the way she was writing the words, the place of the words on the sheet of paper. There's one poem where she talks about the sea and how the waves, you know, it, it, there's a, um, I think there's a lot of wind or the waves are, it, there's a storm. And she literally writes the poem. The T's are like waves, you know, mm. and the S's are, um, I think there is one where the S resembles, uh, now I'm forgetting, but there's something about Sue. And, 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 but anyway, the way that she, her handwriting mm. shows so much. And that's why it's very important to go back to uh, the archives and to see how a poem was written yeah. by her, you know, to, to, to just like you would look at a painting, right? Um, because you can't get that from from books and books yeah. are actually taking her poems out of sometimes stanzas out of a poem to put it to isolate yeah. it and you know so there's also all this which I'm very passionate about but uh, <laughs> we can discuss later um, so you need to see her poems as a work of art as as a painting mm. right I think that that helps a lot and that's why I love to think of her as uh, as a painter but also because she used color words a lot and I went through Open Me Carefully and I literally circled every single color word. <laughs> and I put everything in an Excel spreadsheet to see, you know, the instances, the occurrences and how many times she was using color words that are maybe blue or gold, you know, related to uh, some colors to explain all this. But, mm. but that, that's why 
I see her as a um, as a painter with words, and, yeah. and and it actually reminds me of that scene in Dickinson where she drops a a little bit of ink on the sheet of paper, and she just starts, you know, season two, episode like, one, yeah, where she. Oh. You're so good. Where she smears it, and then the next time, and then she, we see her from the back, and she goes like this. And the next time we see yeah. her, she shows up at Sue's with, yeah. So that's not a real Emily Dickinson. It's a you know Haley's Steinfeld or Elena Smith's uh, Emily Dickinson. But I love how I can see you know, and I can relate to to that mm-hmm. where she has just like a painter. She has ink on her face. A painter would have paint everywhere. Right? Yeah. She's also drawing with her finger at some point and seeing the ink, what it does on the sheet of paper. And I just love that. So that's why I wanted to talk about the poet as a, as a painter. Um, and there's one uh, sentence, one line that I read Rebecca Patterson's uh, uh, book right. called Emily Dickinson's Imagery. It's, I, I, I love it. There are things that I agree with and others that I don't really um, relate to. But she said, even a casual reading of her work makes a kaleidoscopic, I think that's the pronunciation, kaleidoscopic impression. Oh, kaleidoscope. Well, uh, I think kaleidoscope? Kaleidos- yes, but the adjective. <laughs> of I put it. an IAC at the end of it. <laughs> I know, wait, my brain can't do it. <laughs> I just, I don't know how to pronounce it in English. Um, but you know, that pattern of, of yeah. colors and all this. So she said, even a casual reading of her work makes that impression on the mind of the reader. Yeah. Um, so again. Uh, I was about to be like, Jess, help us out. Is it kaleidoscopic? It's kaleidoscope. And uh, I do, however, have a question in correlation to Emily as a painter and publishing and printing. Um, yes. Okay. So yes, she did publish with her fascicles. But do you think that when her poetry went to print and was on a mass scale. Do you feel like her intent and like the cadence of how she wrote it was completely muddled by printing? Because as publishing, it's raw, it's original, it's in its organic form, essentially. So mm-hmm. well, when you say you know, printing she, would muddle it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she actually told uh, Higginson she did not print. And she really uses that word print when he uses published. And so she is telling him, I, there's a difference for me in, you know, between both words. So that's one thing. So she did not want to print. And, and most of her, I think she, uh, 10 of her poems were printed, about 10 of them. Most of them, she didn't even, you know, it wasn't her intention uh, right. to print. Correct me if I'm wrong. But so, and when... They printed, the editors printed her poems, they added a title, right? Uh, they did many things that Emily Dickinson did not want to do. Uh, and then the best example of that to me is the poem, um, is it a little fellow in the grass or a fellow in the grass? The snake poem. Mm. So it has a title, but on top of that, the editors added one question mark at the end of one specific stanza, which kills the whole meaning of that line uh, with one question mark. She did not add that question mark because she's actually not pausing at the end of the the, the line. So when you do not pause 
and you just follow with the second line, there's actually a pun. And when you break that, those two lines, the, there's no pun anymore, but it's even worse. It's the meaning of it is the exact opposite of what Dickinson meant in that, um, in that line. And I tweeted about this one. Mm. Um, so there's so much that you can say about printing and publishing, but when they printed her work, they made so many mistakes. Um, and up to that day, when I see books where they isolate her poems and they organize them by themes and topics, yeah. you know, love and nature, this is against, first of all, this is what Mabel Todd was trying to do when she printed the first, um, the first editions of her poems. She was trying to organize them her way in, uh, you know, based on themes. But Emily Dickinson never organized her poems that way. She organized them in fascicles. And I think we should have books where uh, we have access to, first of all, the manuscript and how the, the poem, what the poem looks like on each page, but also the way she organized them. Not like chronologically like Johnson did, or was it Franklin? I forgot. But, you know, so many people try to organize all this in order their own way and not in Dixon's way. Was that was that your question? Did I answer your question? Yes. Or did I digress yes. a lot? No, 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 no. That was that was perfect. Um, it was a good elaboration. I just I just think that Emily subconsciously knew even when she had what little did print and like Springfield Republican and things like that, what little did go to print, I feel like she subconsciously knew that her cadence of how she spoke it when she wrote it and also like her rhetoric was being broken apart so mm -hmm. that intent was completely yes. you know subjective to the audience to the readers well, yes yes to that but even more than this there's a letter that you can find in the archives and it literally she is saying she's mad she's mad about it and she uses uh, the lexical field of um i forgot the exact word that she's using about that snake poem uh but it's mutilation it's 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 violent the words she's using to you know to explain that it was um it was violent uh to her to see what people were doing with her work yeah for me i think this all kind of correlates like as you guys have been speaking about like emily as a painter like her written I love seeing her poetry like written the way she intended it to be right the same way I would like it correlates to music for me like I love hearing how an artist originally wrote the song and how it sounds like stripped down I love stripped down music because once you get the mastered version or like the radio edit right it has all these layers that go into it so whenever you see someone performing a song the way it was intended or like the songwriter because a lot of people have songwriters the songwriter sing the song exactly how it was just stripped down. I think that's how it correlates to me as far as like Emily's poetry, because I connect poetry and music. This is so good. Actually, I never thought of that, Jay. And you just reminded me of this is exactly what it is. Would you, you know, um, add a note to Mozart? <laughs> So, so, you know, to some... my God, yes. yeah, so I, I, I do music, right. And then like, for me, like I can have a melody in my head, right. Or like lyrics in my head. And then once I record them over a beat, you have to like layer things on top of it to make it sound good. If not, like the whole stripped down version doesn't entirely sound amazing. 
and it just it it kind of like is that way for me like seeing like the strokes of her pen or like because you can kind of see how she how she would have read it in her own tone right yes that's the same there's a musicality Mm -hmm. yes poems are you know they're they're um forgot the the terms in english but um there's musicality to it there there's rhythm right and so you cannot break that the way you know if you don't break music that way and she and she was a, a musician too and so a poet is a painter but a poet is also like you said a musician mm. so for too, me it's this like is great yeah it's like pop artists whenever they have Love like that. this pop song right or the radio edit yes and then you they're actually songwriters like taylor swift they're like anyone right like julia michaels they would sit down and then you hear the song the way they wrote it, which is just with a little piano and a little guitar or just a guitar yes. or just a piano. Right. And then you hear their vocals and that's all you hear. And it's so simple and beautiful, but that's how they're, that's how they wrote the song. And then whenever they turn it into a pop edit, right. You hear all these layers and all this synth and everything just over it. And that's not really how the artist intended the song to be. It's exactly that. And you're, you you got it and this is exactly maybe instead of painter yeah but that's what sells that's what sells artist it's an artist right so whether you're a poet or a painter or or a musician or a writer you do not go in there you don't have a printer who or an editor who goes in there and just you know changes everything for you we don't, we don't go it to Monet it. and and oh I, I prefer you know that type of color there I'm going to change my Monet painting no so why did they do that or is still doing this to Emily Dickinson great point yeah. I love that well you know Jay you just said you know because it sells and that's why Loomis Todd did it mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah they because had to, they had to paint this picture of who she was a race Sue because they needed to create this image but then they also you know did that extra edit job and just butchered it. I, I do have a question about uh, Vi, just to go back to where we can all see the original poems. And I know that there's an online archive. Is that open to everybody? Because I literally haven't had a chance to, to go in there. But I, I keep hearing that some people are having like problems downloading or you, you have to pay for it. Can you tell us like, is there a place where we can all go and see the poems in an online archive? Yes, um, there are two places. Okay. Uh, the first one is, well, actually, Martha Nelsmith worked on the Harvard um, archives. So okay. she is still working on it. She's part of it. But she also has her own, we call it the DEA, the Dickinson, uh, the Dickinson, and now I'm forgetting. It's archives. Uh, it, it's called DEA. Um, I'll, I'll remember that uh, soon. But I shared both links on my website, and it is with Open Me Carefully. It's literally and the lexicon. It's literally my Bible. Um, I go there all the time, and that's what Martha always says: go to the manuscript. So yes, it is. You do not have to pay to see that. You do not have to pay to download uh, things like that. Oh, Thank God, I, no one should pay to have access to Emily Dickinson's no. work. Right, so that's why they're there, and you should have, uh, you should be able to, to to do that. If you go to Harvard, you cannot see the manuscripts unless you're doing some research, and I, I have a problem with that. I think her work should be accessible to everyone, mm. regardless of what who you are, what you do. But the um, the archives are 
um, yes, you can just go there. I, I go there all the time and I share it in my tweets as a main source. And that's where you can see literally how she wrote everything. So there's that. And then there's the big question about where, where is Emily Dickinson's work? It's scattered. Yeah, I read that the other day. I was following that breadcrumb and then it was also, and I'm not going to be able to recall all the details, but just the ownership of everything and how it's gone back and forth. And yeah, it's spread between like Harvard and Amherst College, right? And Brown University. And Brown, yeah. You can go, I mean, to so many places and then you have the original dress in the um, Emily Dickinson, uh, Emily uh, Dickinson International Society near the Jones Library in Amherst. There's a reproduction of it in the museum. It's not right. a real dress. And then the actual writing desk at the museum in the homestead is not a real one. The real one is in Harvard. Uh, the piano is in Harvard. The whole book collection is in Harvard. And all this is scattered. To me, everything should be in Amherst. <laughs> it should be in the homestead. It should be where Emily spent her, yeah. you know. Her but life. it was family. It, was, it seemed like it was... Yes, like family wrangling. It, it was that, that feud between <laughs> yeah. the the Mabel Todd, you know, uh, side of it, and then uh, there was this feud over some land that Mabel wanted to get. Right, that she fought for uh, from the Dickinson, and then you have uh, Martha Bianchi, Susan's daughter, yeah, who had the Evergreens and the homestead, and then uh, gave uh, you know everything she had to Harvard. Uh, Mabel gave it to I think was it. Uh, the Amherst College, but so everything is scattered because of that. Because I wonder how much money is trying to get a piece of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I wonder how much money all of this is worth. Like in conjunction, like, <laughs> like so there, if some yeah, some so random so millionaire billionaire decides, yo, like let's just buy all these Emily Dickinson things and put them back in the homestead. Oh, I don't think Harvard would let go. I think yeah, I, think I, I don't think they would sell it like. Either. No, like they're Harvard. <laughs> they're like, we are never, yeah, there, we don't need your money. Um, it, it's true, Robin, but there's also a good, I think to me, there's a good side of Harvard having uh, these things too. Oh yeah, no, no, because, no. I, yeah, I just mean they don't need the money. I think that they're like. Oh yes. And yeah. I don't think, you know, I don't see the money in there. I see it as um, they have a ton of money. And so they have a, a good way of preserving all this. Preserving in the legacy and yeah. Yes. But that being said, uh, all this should be accessible. You know, now that if you have to, if you're moving, making a movie and you're using some of the poems that they have or anything else that they have, you have to mention Harvard and you have to ask for the authorization. Yeah. And all that. So to me, this is, you know, Dickinson is everyone's Dickinson. I know. Um, we should all have access to that. So, but back to your question. Yes, go to the archives. Please do that. I, I always try to tell people, be careful with the, books that you're buying and what you're reading, just go back to the archives. It's Emily Dickinson in her own words. And that is the truth. Mm. That is the truth. Not, you know, uh, biographies and based on what Mabel said, or yeah. um, it is important. It's, it, we have to, you know, to appreciate um, people who spend many years researching her and all this. I do yeah. appreciate that. I think but you and I are also on the same page. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I think you and I are also on the same page. I know that uh, we connected on a tweet with somebody who I think was another writer or something that was talking about the show Dickinson and it's like, what book should we get? And I'm always like, open me carefully, read the letters, right? If you want to know, in my opinion, if you want to know what their relationship was, it's all right there. Yes. 
you know what I did, Robin, when I saw that? I actually, well, besides from <laughs> sending her 10 messages. You were amazing. I couldn't stop. I was like, well, if she asked, I'm answering, I'm sharing, you know, some <laughs> yes. stuff. But it was, it was so much. Um, I had to apologize at the end. I said, I'm so sorry about all these tweets and all these messages, but I have one last thing to mention. Um, so I did, but I actually went to Martha and I DM Martha and I said, Martha, here is a, a thread. Literally, I'm so happy to see that. Look at all these people answering. Like everyone was saying, open me carefully. Yes. Um, maybe Leslie Archives. I think I was the one mentioning the archives, but because our slowly, um, people are slowly understanding that they should go back to uh, the manuscripts. Mm -hmm. But everyone was mentioning Martha. And I said, this is working. You know, we're spreading that new understanding that those 35 plus years of research that Martha yes. did. Um, and, and everyone is talking about open me carefully and, you know, and it means a lot to me because I, I'm trying to help people from Brazil, from Italy, from, you know, different countries to get that book because they should have it. And yeah. I think I'm like, we're like conquering the world with open me carefully so that <laughs> you're leading you know, the charge so that, on that. Yeah. But so that people, um, can understand that, that, under, that new understanding of Dickinson and not see her as that sad woman um, and see her in her own words. And so it was, it meant a lot. Yes, I did send that to Martha. That was three days ago, something like this. And she was very, very happy to see it. Yeah. Okay. Th th <laughs> so obviously you're gonna be back with us again. <laughs> and we didn't make it through the whole list. I mean, we not even a third of it. I not think. even a third um, of it, but we all know we already have, we can't really announce a lot of things right now because they're in the works, but we already know that you're gonna be co-hosting with us in the future yes. with some very cool people. Um, okay. But we're obviously gonna have you back on because you are just a joy and you bring so much Thank to the you. conversation. I feel like I have learned so much like in the last hour. Um, Thank you. Yo, thank you. It's amazing. Um, but the last thing before we go, tell us about your website. Let people know where they can find it. And um, what's your passion behind it? Yes, I just like Emily, you know, when she's in, in Dickinson, when she's back from the funeral, and she's like, I have a burst of poetry, <laughs> you don't have to write it down. I felt the same. I felt the same. I just I need to put it down. I need to, because it's getting it's getting my ideas are or analysis or research is getting buried in Twitter. And mm. it's very hard for me to write more than 250 words. Yeah. And so I felt like, okay, I need to have that place or just like Emily, Emily had her trunk to put all her poems in it. I need to have a place where I can just vent and I can just share all this and I can just take it out of my mind. Um, and so I'm not asking people to read it. I'm just, I need to put it there. And so you can find so many things from um, poems that I analyzed in simple ways and words for yeah. non-native English speakers or, you know, to help people try to go to the lexicon and analyze Emily Dickinson's poetry to uh, articles about, you know, that Martha Nelsmith, my hero, <laughs> wrote. Um, other things about you know, this podcast will be on my website. I have uh, webinars that I was, uh, that I attended um, or just uh, other YouTube videos that I love that I put in there. So I'm just putting everything in that. It's fabulous. <laughs> it's, it's a go-to place. I mean, I, 
I am looking at it right now and it is, uh, it's called Sue's Salon, yes? Yes, it is. Uh, just because, you know, it's a place where we can, and, and Sue's Salons were actually places where intellectual, intellectuals would go and exchange ideas and she was the, uh, it was the place to be. And so this connection and intellectual, emotional connection to Sue's Salon is how I came up with the, uh, the title of it. Um, you can send me a message through it. It's there's not a ton so far because I've been writing about colors for months, and so I just need to add a few things there. But uh, but it's getting there, and um, and I just yeah, just I'm just using it as a um, a way to share. Well, it is fabulous, and we will Jay, we will share the link when we post this episode. Um, and one last question. If you could ask Emily Dickinson one question, what would that be? Yeah. So first, you know, that's something I actually thought of a ton. You know, when people ask you, hey, if you could go back in time, who would you meet, you know, and have dinner with? Or, of course, Emily Dickinson for me. And I was thinking, why would I, you know, if I could, if I could meet her, what, what would I say? And, um, and I saw your question and I, and I, I loved it because I thought a lot about that. And, and I thought that maybe I would ask her, Hey, Emily, can I ask you a thousand questions? So that maybe that would be, you know, a way for me to ask many more questions. Yeah. Many more answers. So that's a, the joke or the funny answer that I would give you. Yeah. Uh, but the real one would be, remember when Emily Dickinson said, um, if I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching or cool one pain or help one fainting robin unto his nest again i shall not live in vain well the question i would ask her um, is dear emily <laughs> are you happy with your legacy right and the impact that you and your poetry had and are still having on so many people do you feel like you did not live um, in vain. I think that would be the most important question for me to ask her. Oh my God, I'm literally tearing up right now. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Wow. That was very eloquent. Thank you. That was beautiful, yeah. The journey continues. Vi, you will come back and play with us, yes? I hope so. I hope so. I just love being with you all and, and talking about all this uh, together. I love your podcast. And um, yeah, it's it's been a pleasure and an honor um, to be with you all today. The honor is ours. You're part of our family now. So now you have to come back. <laughs> For sure. For sure. All right. All right, everyone. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Just a quick little message. Uh, we want to say thank you for listening to us. And you can follow us on our podcast Twitter at the number four evermore, capital P O D. And you can follow us on Instagram at dickinson.forevermore.podcast. That's right. And you can hear this podcast on Spotify or wherever else that you listen to podcasts. So I'll bring us in, but I am um, going to hand it off to you real quick, just so you get ready. You can get in your receiving mode. Hot potato. Are you ready?
Uh... <laughs> I mean, the whole thing starts ma, ma, off with a montage. Ma, ma. So.